Lucifer and his angels are released from the abyss, torturing those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They will physically appear for all to see. He will come as an angel of light, masquerading as Almighty God, mocking the second coming and placing himself as God, deceiving even the elect if that were possible. Many will marvel and believe the lie. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Lucifer is allowed to exercise his power for 42 months. The crisis government that will form shortly after the first trumpets is the beginning of the beast system in Revelation 13 that will become the only economically viable system globally to function in the current state of the world during those days. At this time, the world will be in ruin and the necessities of life will become scarce in a very short time period. Lucifer will head this government upon his appearing, but the foundation has been laid and the stage set for the events to follow. He will implement a mark, a pledge of allegiance for all those who wish to buy or sell and live sustainably for what short time they have left. This is the mark of the beast. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Welcome to this week's show. I hope everyone is doing well. On this week's episode, we look into the strange coincidences surrounding the people involved with the making of the movie The Omen. Was The Omen cursed by the devil, or was it just all a coincidence? Let's go beyond the edge of darkness. and astonishing horror movies of all time was revealed to the world on the sixth day of the sixth month of 1976. The Omen told the chilling tale of Damien, the child antichrist on Earth. In the film, Damien's presence leads to a series of horrific accidents, lightning strikes and animal attacks. What audiences didn't know was that behind the camera a series of terrifying events unfolded with striking similarities to scenes in the film. I 
think there's a real genuine possibility that there, there could have been a demonic power at work within that movie. Was it a coincidence? Was it a curse? It seemed like an awful lot of bad things happened. I got a cross, and I wore the cross every day because I wasn't about to take any chances. It's like we were always one step ahead of disaster because somebody didn't want this picture to get made. Death seemed to stoke the production. Not one thing, but many, many incidents happened that made us aware that something was going on. Crew members were savaged and killed in horrific circumstances. There were too many things for them to be just coincidental. And even when filming was complete, fatal accidents continued to plague those who'd worked on the movie. Right opposite the point where the, the accident happened was an old milepost with nothing but sixes on it. The bomb exploded on the ground floor in the entrance hall crowded with about a hundred people. Sure, I was scared. Am I going to be a victim? But if you bleed in that stuff, you can't make a movie. I mean, what we've all got to understand is that the devil likes to work in secret. And the great play of The Omen was that every death could be explained away in a very practical way. To this day, many crew members believe that tragic events surrounding The Omen defy rational explanation and that the film was satanically cursed. The devil was at work and he didn't want the picture made. After the movie was made, serious things happened to people. That curse is still there. And demons are still following everybody who was involved in it to this day. The Omen emerged from Hollywood of the early 1970s, a time when the peace and love ethos of the previous decade was being replaced by cynicism, paranoia, and fear. The trial of Charles Manson, coupled with the success of films such as Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, fed the audience's appetite for ever darker satanic movies. But the inspiration for one of the highest grossing horror movies of all time didn't come out of a studio brainstorm. It came to a businessman as he made his way along Hollywood Boulevard. I remember stepping into the intersection at the corner where right now they hold the Academy Awards every year. And as I, my foot hit the pavement, I just felt this chill go all the way down my spine as I, 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 I felt this idea almost full-blown. What if the Antichrist was already here at this very moment? He's there right now, plotting to kill and enslave everyone in the world, but he's just a little boy right at this minute. And I just felt a chill go down my spine. Inspired by this idea, Robert Munger set out to find a way to make his movie about the Antichrist on Earth. But he wasn't in the film business, and he needed help. So he called film producer Harvey Bernard and begged him to meet for a hamburger. He said, uh, have you ever read the book of Revelations? I said, no. 
He says, well, it's about the Antichrist coming back. And he said, what if the Antichrist was a little boy? I dropped the hamburger and I ran out of the restaurant. The film was originally called The Antichrist, and it was beginning to come to life. And Harvey Bernard and partner Mace Newfelt were thrilled when one of America's biggest stars expressed interest in the leading role. We got a call from Peck's agent saying that he'd like to meet and talk about it. We were all very excited because Gregory Peck gave a, a, a new dimension, a stature to that role. With everything going well, the producers were mystified when Bob Munger, the man who came up with the original idea, insisted on a last-minute meeting. I warned Harvey at the time, I said, if you make this movie, you're going to have some very big uh, unexpected problems if the devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible and you're going to do something that's going to take away his cloak of invisibility to millions of people he's not going to want that to happen is he munger was sure that making a film about the existence of the antichrist would be extremely dangerous i sort of felt very weird about it because we were dealing in areas that we didn't know about and later on in the picture it's got worse worse and worser in the midst of the last minute preparations they put the warnings of satanic retribution to the very back of their mind but just three months before filming was due to begin the first of a series of tragic events rocked the production in june of 1975 greg's son uh, took a revolver to his head and blew his brains out. He definitely was completely devastated by this. Without question, it was the great tragedy of his life. Pack was consumed by grief, but his career was at a low ebb, and the filmmakers were convinced he was still right for the role of Ambassador Robert Thorne. So it was an emotional Peck who set off in September 1975 on a flight bound for London. The tragic death of his son and the eerie warnings had upset preparations, but only now did a series of frightening events spark the first whispers of a curse. The scares began 20,000 feet over the Atlantic when Peck's plane took a direct hit from a lightning strike. Gregory Peck, he had big problems flying over. The engine caught on fire. That was very scary, it, because it was the start. It was a very scary moment. He was our star, and there were other people on the plane besides our stars. I'm a pilot. That happens from time to time, and the only thing it may do is knock out some electrical systems, but uh, rarely is a plane downed by lightning. As producer Mace Newfeld boarded his flight, he convinced himself that Peck had just been unlucky and that lightning couldn't strike twice. On my way over, we flew through a tremendous thunderstorm. I mean, really shaky. All I know is that it was the roughest five minutes I've ever had on a commercial airliner. We were hit by lightning during the storm. It was very, very scary. Two separate flights from L.A. to London, both hit by lightning strikes. 
By the time the filmmakers touched down at Heathrow Airport, they were happy just to be alive. But while they could choose to ignore this statistically improbable coincidence, they couldn't ignore what happened next. When people enter into any kind of venture in which you're going to explore the themes of evil and the supernatural and the devil himself, let alone the Antichrist, they better look out. It is very serious business. It is dangerous. You don't mess with this stuff. Omen is renowned as one of the most disturbing horror movies of all time. But the true story of the troubled, some would say cursed, production of the film is just as frightening. The true story of the troubled, some would say cursed, production of the film is just as frightening. The crew had ignored warnings that making a movie about the Antichrist was asking for trouble. The people who worked on the set, the people who were involved in the movie, were putting themselves at risk. When you deal with the devil, you're about to get into a war. In the autumn of 1975, the Omen production team touched down in London after two separate flights had been struck by lightning. But their trouble with planes was about to take a more sinister turn. The first shots director Richard Donner wanted to film were simple aerial shots over London. We rented a plane, a Hawker Sidley, and... Uh, we got as good a deal as we can because, as I said, it was a budget film. And we got a call from them one day and said, this is all in the papers. I mean, but they, got, they had a better deal on that day. If we gave up that plane, they would give us a big discount. Hey, take the plane. So after a last-minute switch, the plane that had been booked to take Dick Donner, his cameraman and producer, instead took off with its new passengers, a group of Chinese businessmen. The flight was to end in disaster. Plane took off, hit a flock of birds, lost power, crashed at the end of the runway in England, hit a car, wagon. Six people were killed, and tragically, in the car were the wife and children of one of the airfield's pilots. Investigators were baffled. The circumstances seemed incredibly unlikely. As soon as the jet left the runway, a flock of birds had apparently flown directly into the engines. And mysteriously, on that one day, essential safety equipment had been switched off. One spokesman told me Dunsfold does have bird-scaring devices, but at the time the executive jet took off, these were not in operation. If it hadn't been for the last-minute change of plan, the Omen's director, cameraman and producer would have been among the casualties. Location filming was about to begin, but the filmmakers still hadn't cast Damien. Finding an evil-looking six-year-old English boy whose parents would let him play the Antichrist was proving impossible. It was a bitch. First we went through casting of the professional children, and you realized they were professional children. They no longer had minds of their own, and they were putty in other people's hands. And then we decided to go to school. 
there were three kids come in at a time, and Dick would question him, I would question him. He gave it to a little boy, and he turned it down because his father thought that he didn't want the kid to play the devil. In comes this cockney, blonde cockney with green eyes. And I, I loved the kid. And Dick says, uh, uh. The blonde-haired cockney was Harvey Stevens. His angelic look would eventually become the face of the Antichrist. But Dick Donner wasn't convinced. We kept looking. We saw a whole bunch of kids. And I had this dark-haired child in my mind. And I said to Dick, will you do me a favor? Just one favor. Test Harvey Stevens. And I asked him, you know, to... Let's have a little fight. Let's see if you because there's the scene in the car with Lee Remick where he really had to tear into an adult like he would tear into another child. And I said, you know, don't let me stop you. When he started hitting me and kicking me, he hit me in my gonads. I mean, he was the toughest little bastard I've ever seen. And he yelled, cut, cut, cut. And he hit him with the balls. It just, just was there. And Dick finally got him off. And he said... That's Damien, dye his hair black, I cast him. He was Damien. He had the sixes on his head. That's what, I cast him only because of that. And he looked in the back and said, there it is, six, six, six. The idea of having a possessed child is something which is, has been around for thousands upon thousands of years. It's that innocent having within them something which is totally evil. But playing the Antichrist wasn't easy and the child's off-camera behavior would exasperate the rest of the cast. I wanted to strangle him. <laughs> I thought he was awful. He just seemed to know he was playing the lead. He really was a little devil. If he had to do anything violent, he did it to the extreme. You know, he really threw his heart and soul into it. Harvey was a, a pretty wired little kid and, and um... Sure, you'd hear from him. He'd come running in, go running out. I mean, if he'd been my son, I think I'd have tapped his bum, you know. But... <laughs> but I believe he's very nice now. I've heard. He's grown up into a very nice young man. But it was tough. Tough on him more than us. In 1975, Harvey Stevens was too young to understand. But for a while, he was the most feared child in the world. But like Damien, he grew up. He never pursued an acting career and rarely talks about his time on The Omen. I've not become a weirdo, not a member of any occult. I'm not deeply religious or anything, so it hasn't, I don't think, done anything to me mentally. It's just something that you know, I'm always tagged with. With Damien Cast, the full production crew gathered in Surrey in October 1975. They didn't know it then, but they were about to embark on the most demanding and frightening shoot of their professional lives. There were mysterious accidents. Animals behaved as if possessed by demons. And it started with the Rottweilers. With dogs, there is something occultically menacing that can be played upon. We have dog as man's best friend, but also in the back of our mind, we know that he's only one step away from being a wolf. Those dogs were terrifying. I mean, do you know Rottweilers? 
great big chess. They were terrifying. I mean, if one of those went for you, you wouldn't stand a hope in hell. The Rottweilers were so convincing in the film that they became known as devil dogs, and even the crew were shocked at their ferocity. The minute we did the first attack scene, the makeup ladies went, oh, we didn't know they could do that. They look really menacing, that's why they're like good guard dogs. But when they do get wound up, you can't stop them. When filming the graveyard scene, the crew saw just how vicious the dogs could be. Doubling for actor David Warner, stuntman Terry Walsh took one look at the powerful jaws of the Rottweilers and decided he needed extra protection. We padded his arm with the normal pads and then we put some extra felt around that. And then we got this stainless steel. It was quite thin, but it's still strong. In the graveyard scene, we got a lot of young dogs barking and leaping about. And then we had the two main lead dogs who were trained to bite. Almost immediately, it was obvious that something was seriously wrong and that the dogs were out of control. This dog actually bit right through everything. Padding, all this steel, the lot, the dog bit through everything. And we, and we even had a job to get the dog to let go. Terry passed out. He's actually bitten quite seriously and um, I think he was also shocked. The stuntman was rushed to hospital. But this was only the first of a series of violent animal attacks, which would end with a crew member being killed. They filmed three scenes at the safari park. The second of which would traumatize young Harvey and Lee Remick. The baboons are supposed to attack the car, right? And try to get at the kid, and they're all faced by the kid being the son of the devil. They recognize it, you know, animals have this sensory perception of evil. So they said, how will they get them excited and come for the car? The crew employed a park warden, who was ever present with advice on the best way to get a reaction from the animals. They're very family-oriented, so if you take a young baboon and put it inside, that would be it. They were furious, and Lee Remick didn't know how to drive the car. The baboons were attacking from outside, or making a lot of fuss outside, and the baby baboon was pissing all over the place. And the baboons came and tried to kill them. They were scared to death. Lee Remick was terrified, and Harvey Stevens was terrified. Lee Remick and Harvey were shocked, but unharmed by their ordeal. The baboon's reaction was probably just an instinctive response. But there was another animal attack, which would have fatal consequences. The third scene they filmed at the safari park that week was set in the big cat's enclosure, although it never made the final cut. They were helped by Sidney Bamford, a 22-year-old park keeper whose life was about to come to a horrifying end. We had a, a young guy who was working in the lion section of the safari park, although we didn't use that footage. The day we moved out of there, the guy was attacked and killed. The keeper 
was in between two wire fences. Well, unbeknownst to him, he thought the tiger was on one side. The tiger was on top. And when he stuck his head out, the tiger grabbed him by the head, pierced his skull, and just killed him. I mean, he was with us all the time we were, we were filming. That was horrible. It was, it was shattering. Word of the attack made the crew extremely nervous, and rumors swept through the set. Midway through the filming, an already frightened Lee Remick was scheduled to film a stunt where she was to fall from a balcony. But with everything that had happened, she didn't want to tempt fate. She'd be attached to the crane, she'd fall. We'd take the crane down in slow motion. At speed, it would look like she really fell. So John Richardson went over to measure her. And I'm going to shoot it like a day later or something. And he called me from there. He said, uh, we got a problem. So what's wrong? He said, Lee won't do that shot. I said, oh, yeah. She, he said, no, no, no. So I said, let me talk to her. So Lee got on and I said, Lee, she said, I don't want to do the shot. He said, wait a minute, let me tell you. She said, no, I don't want to do the shot. I said, Lee, she said, listen, things can happen, and I'm not going to put myself in that jeopardy. I said, there is. she said, the answer is no. Lee Remick sensed that something was destined to go wrong. The director had to come up with a creative solution. So what we did was, she's on a stool working on some plants. Kid comes along, knocks her off. And as she knock, gets knocked off, she hits the bowl. Now we shoot the bowl at a 120 frames straight away from us. High speed, and this thing is just falling away, and it smashes into the floor. <laughs> and then we took the floor and the fishbowl, and we Jared, put it on the wall. Jared. And then we put Lee on the dolly standing up. No facing the winds, and the dolly had a little turntable on it. Her body just turns automatically with the weight, and she hits the floor, but she went up against the wall at a control speed. When you cut it together, it was better idea than what I had originally. The cast and crew's fears were now changing the way the film was being made. The fatal plane crash had made them uneasy. When the dog savaged the stuntman, their suspicions grew. And since the animal handler had been so gruesomely slain by the tiger, they'd become obsessed with the idea that demons were interfering with the film. One day, uh, Harvey Bernhardt said to me, you know everybody in America is, is praying for us. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, no. He said, the, there's a great belief that um, the devil will not allow this movie to be made. We were very apprehensive. I got a cross, and I wore the cross every day. I wasn't about to take any chances. Okay, now everybody be quiet. We're going to have our prayers. And Lord, we, we ask you to keep us all in perfect health, and we bless your name, Lord, for this beautiful day. I prayed for him, but I, I had a whole prayer chain of other people that prayed for them. And if they had known just how bad it was going to get, everyone would have been on their knees. Was I scared? Sure, I was scared. Am I going to be a victim? The plot of the omen leaves it up to the audience to decide. Is what is happening the work of demons, or is it just a series of unfortunate coincidences?
It was the question that haunted the cast and crew at the end of every arduous day. Whispers about the plane crash, the death of the animal handler, and the ferocious Rottweilers were swapped over late-night drinks. But even in the comfort of their hotel, they weren't safe. The blast shook the 28th-floor building, blowing windows into the street. The bombs are thought to be the work of a group of IRA terrorists. During that period in London, the IRA was extremely active, and there were a multitude of bombings. They were rampant then, and it was very dangerous. They bombed the Hilton Hotel. It was right after we left. The bomb exploded on the ground floor in the entrance hall crowded with about a hundred people. One man who was in the hall said he thought it was under a big armchair in the middle of the lobby. I walked out of the hotel with my wife and all of a sudden there was this tremendous roar and uh, my wife turned to me she said I didn't know they had earthquakes in, in London and it's, I said it sounded like a bomb. The main force of the blast was felt along the front and side of the building. The hotel was cordoned off and parts of Park Lane were blocked for hours. For the Los Angeles team, London suddenly felt like hell on earth. I carried a flashlight with me. And if I go to a restaurant in somebody's home, it was pissing down with rain or what, man. I get down on my knees and look under my car. Gregory Peck was determined to keep spirits up. And on the 12th of November, he invited the nervous producers and director to join him for dinner at his favorite restaurant. We all had reservations to uh, eat together and we were actually going to Scott's restaurant for seafood. They blew up the restaurant just before we got there. Once again, those most closely tied to the film had been minutes away from death. And whether they believed in the curse or not, they were all terrified. Was I scared? Sure, I was scared. Am I going to be a victim? To this day, opinions are divided as to what was happening. Skeptics think it was a series of extraordinary coincidences. Believers are convinced that Satan was at work. Things do happen as the result of satanic collusion, absolutely. Well, Satanists believe in curses. We have uh, what we call a destruction ritual. As far as the curses revolving around the, the filming of The Omen, was it coincidence? Was it a curse? It seemed like an awful lot of bad things happened. There were a, a lot of tragedies. I think there's a real genuine possibility that there, there could have been a demonic power at work within that movie. But on set, the director wouldn't hear any talk of the curse and dismissed supernatural explanations. What the hell is the devil? I mean, you know, uh, I don't believe in it. Did the devil have anything to do with the making or not making of this picture? No. Despite the director's scorn, the crew continued whispering of the curse and an edgy atmosphere prevailed. There was always a, a, a little feeling of uneasiness um, about strange things that, that were happening. As filming neared completion, Gregory Peck also had deep concerns. At the climax of the film, Ambassador Robert Thorne has to kill his son on the church altar. But Peck just couldn't bring himself to do it. He's an actor. He's in the story. It is a script. And here's a, an actor about to drive a, 
a knife into a child. Was he concerned about it? Totally. Less than a year had passed since Peck's own son had committed suicide, and the actor was still grieving. As any parent who's lost a child, to be, to be picking up another child and to touch their hair or you just put them up against your chest, you know, those are the moments that the memory of what that was like with his own son and what a joy his own son had been to him when he was little must have been very hard. We had some long discussions about it. I mean, I felt that it was essential. It was tough. An emotional Peck felt it was implausible that a father would kill his only son. Greg was just trying to get through the day at that point, to be able to film, to be able to do his best in the movie with this tremendous weight of this raw wound of his son's death, and, you know, and then to get through the night. We had to talk to Peck. Uh, uh, he, he just, he didn't, he didn't have to talk to Peck. Uh, uh, he, he just, he didn't, he didn't want to do it. Gregory Peck said, I, I don't want to play that scene, and I don't think I should be killing a five-year-old child. Finally, Harvey Bernhardt saved the situation. He said, I'll tell you what. He says, we'll film it both ways, one where you do and one where you don't, and then we'll just use whichever is the best. And he got him to go ahead with that, and of course, the one that had the greatest dramatic impact was the one that you see in the movie. It's the most powerful scene in the whole movie. Would you be prepared to kill someone you loved, even though you knew that inside them there was a demonic force? Please, Daddy, no! No, Daddy, no! God, help me! With two different endings, the filmmakers had a difficult choice to make. Should they show good triumphing over evil? The first cut of the film had a very different ending from the one that would eventually be released. Harvey and I showed him the film, the last scene, you pull back and it's two adult caskets and a child's casket and you realize that Peck is dead, Lee Remick is dead and the child is dead, that he had been successful in knifing the child and that the bullet had killed him. Damien was dead and the world was saved. But the Antichrist was to be resurrected before the film was released. That deserves to be put in the hands of Alan Wyatt Jr. at 20th Century Fox, because as we were getting out from dinner, he said, you know, is there any way you can keep the kid alive? He said, oh, my God. Can I, I, but we have to reshoot. He said, take the money you need and reshoot it. I shot it. I actually was on the camera. You pull back and drop down, and there's little Damien. You realize he's not dead. And the audience went, oh, wow. He turned and looked at camera, and I said, don't you laugh, Damien. Don't you dare start laughing now. And I cut it and printed, showed it to Laddie, and he said, that's it. And it's this great. So at the end, for me, it's like he's saying, did this movie even exist? Do you believe for a second I'm the, the son of the devil? Filming was completed in January 1976. With the irreplaceable film in the hold, the production team headed back to Hollywood. And somehow they just knew that this last journey would be targeted. We are taking the negative back to the States. 
I had a bad feeling about it. Dick had a bad feeling about it. My wife had a bad feeling about it. I just wanted to get home. Alarm went off, and they said, we have to make an emergency landing in Newfoundland. I said, oh, we're not going to make it. Eventually, they made it back to L.A., but then they had to fight to get the film taken seriously. We had a terrible time with the people who were marketing the film. They kept saying, oh, relax, it's a horror film, it's only a film. It was, you know, it's just another picture. And Harvey and I literally had a fist fight. I wanted to build him. I just, I was going to hit him. Harvey put a guy against the wall, I put a guy against the desk, who had a, had a marketing. He was giving us the brush off. And Harvey went berserk, he jumped the desk, grabbed his guy, and he said, to you, it's a film, to me, it's my life. Don't bullshit me with, uh, it's just another picture. We really believed in this. And Alan Ladd let us go to the man who was the CEO, the head of Fox. And he said, bring in your own people. If you really believe in this, and we did. Their persistence paid off, and Fox put up a staggering $15 million to market the $2 million film. It was due to be released on the 3rd of June, but the head of the studio spotted an opportunity they could only have dreamed of. Alan Ladd looked at the program and he said, you know, guys, if you wait three more days, you'll come out on June 6th, this big preview night. This, he said, six month, sixth day, 1976, 666. Oh, my God. It got incredible to us. You tend to think of, like, marketing and hype as being quite recent inventions, but The Omen is one of the first movies where I, c I remember the advertising impinging on your life. To this day, it stands, I think, as a brilliant campaign. As the build-up continued, the crew of The Omen moved on to new projects, and where they went, misfortune seemed to follow. All right, shooting this time, Things right, seemed to have happened to people after the movie was made shown around the world serious things happen to people the accidents associated with the omen were far from over if anything they seemed to get more severe Alf joined with her on the film he arranged all the stunts and worked out how things were going to be done when Lee Rennick falls out of the hospital window onto the roof of the ambulance the stuntman Alf joined jumped from a, a cherry picker over the top landing on the roof and Lee Remick, who was already sitting inside the ambulance, fell back so that you, you saw her face. The strange thing that happened was, was a year later on a movie called Bridge Too Far in Holland. Our very first day's filming, Elf gets shot standing on the rooftop and he has to fall off the rooftop into the airbags. And he had the airbags on the ground, it must have been about 40 feet down. Right in the middle of the tape, when we were doing it, he, he sort of fell off rather strangely and awkwardly. Missed the airbag and injured himself quite badly and ended up in hospital. He knew exactly where to fall and everything else, but he, somehow he just landed in between the airbags. He said he felt as though he was pushed. But there was nobody near him at the time. He was completely up there on his own. Couldn't understand it. Well-known stuntman, been in the business many years, and the airbags were quite big, but for some extraordinary reason, he fell in between them. Nobody can explain why. 
the slightly weird thing to us who had been on the omen was that Alf was lying in hospital in exactly the same way that he was when he was doubling Lee Remick. So he had the same arm in a cast and the same tubes up his nose and, and everything. And there was a, a, a very sort of spooky similarity. On the 6th of June, 1976, the omen opened. The sense of evil terrified audiences, and cinemas were packed on its first weekend. The picture opened with a bang. I mean, just so big that I, we couldn't believe it. I used to love to go to screenings to sit in the front row and look back at the audience, and it gave me such glee to see these people screaming, hiding their eyes, and it was mind-blowing. The audience reaction was, was stunning when Lee Remick falls out of the window, the woman next to me stood up and says, she's dead now. It was just like having an orgasm because we, we made a picture that affected human beings. I remember going to an Odeon cinema and it being packed to the doors to watch The Omen. And it had such a hype about it. From the moment it started to roll to the very end, everybody was captivated. With every death, there was a scream. The omen was a sensation, and talk of a curse was forgotten. But inevitably, word of the omen's troubled production seeped out. Rumors and theories about the film linked the on-screen deaths with the numerous incidents which plagued the production. The violent suicide scene echoed the tragic death of Gregory Peck's son. The attacks on Damien in the safari park fatally mirrored when an animal handler was killed. And even after filming had been completed, the stuntman who doubled for Lee Remick seriously injured himself in a bizarre accident. But the most shocking death in the film was an elaborate stunt that to this day is one of the most horrific scenes in cinema history. I came up with the idea one day of having the, the sheet of glass on the back of a truck and the truck running backwards down the hill. It ended up with a pretty good decapitation, I thought. Audiences gasped at the disturbing death, and like so many incidents in the film, it would return to haunt the man who created it. And though John Richardson couldn't have known it at the time, this death too would be reenacted in real life. The most frightening and inexplicable omen-related death was about to unfold. In 1976, audiences packed cinemas to see The Omen. They had no idea that making the film had been a traumatic, exhausting and emotional battle. And even the crew didn't know that there was still a terrifying twist to come. But for a moment, the curse was forgotten, and the producers celebrated the film's success. It did $100 million worldwide in the first six months. And that was at a dollar, 90 cents a dollar. The picture would have made 500 million had it been done today. To the amazement of Christian churches, frightened audiences reached for the Bible to seek reassurance. 
More people read the Bible than ever before. The sales of the Bible went up because the people were going to check the book of Revelations. I know many people who, when they left the cinema after watching The Omen, went home, picked up a Bible, and read chapter 13. And I did it myself. I wanted to see whether or not this was true. The movie introduced the idea of the number of the beast to a stunned public, and so began years of wild speculation. It actually says they will neither be able to buy, nor eat, nor go about their business, other than those who carry the mark of the beast. The thing with 666, in Hebrew, every number is allocated a letter. So when we say, they shall carry the mark of the beast, and his number shall be 600, and 66. So when you work it out in Hebrew, it means W, W, W. And so one of the great theories is that the World Wide Web is actually the great beast. The mark of the beast is a very serious thing. This sign means a deep devotion to the devil. That's what the Antichrist is. He is Satan incarnate. An evil so unimaginable, we can't even begin to comprehend it in human terms. That's not something people ought to toy around with, with a tattoo or a t-shirt. The omen tapped into a younger generation's spiritual insecurities, and audiences were desperate for more information about the film. Rumors about the curse began to circulate, and the crew were repeatedly asked to explain what had actually happened. There were reports in the newspapers of things that were going on. They were actually going on, but people thought they were publicity for the film. Nothing in this world happens completely by accident. This is real, and that's why it's so frightening. You make a movie about demonic beings if you believe in them, which I don't. And if something happens, you go, wow, they're trying to stop us. It was real. The devil didn't want to make this picture, and it was obvious. But real or imagined, the curse had one last chilling twist that no amount of reasoning could explain away. About a year after the movie, I had a, uh, an accident myself, a car smash. John Richardson had designed the beheading sequence. But 12 months after the stunt, he himself was involved in a fatal accident. It was certainly very odd because it happened on Friday the 13th. Nobody really seems to know what happened. We know it was a head-on crash, but why it happened, how it happened, nobody ever seemed to work that out. The accident happened in Holland, where Richardson was working on his next film. Late one night, he was driving along a dark road with his assistant, Liz Moore, when tragedy struck. John had this head-on crash, and Liz Moore was in the car with him. The front wheel of John's car came right through the car and cut her in half. Liz Moore died instantly, and John Richardson lay seriously injured. When he opened his eyes, the first thing he saw terrified him right opposite the point where the, the accident happened was an old mile post with nothing but sixes on it. 
And in view of what Harvey had said to me about everybody praying for us, I mean, that immediately came to my mind. And then what spooked me even more was when I discovered it was on a road to a place called Omen. The accident was on the road to a town called Omen, and it had 66 kilometres on the sign because I drove back over the, the place um, when the accident happened. It seemed an impossible set of coincidences. The special effects man who created the beheading effect, his passenger cut in two. On Friday the 13th, on the road to Omen, and at that very spot, the number 666.